Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guests will be Kathleen Siaka, who uh, works with dual diagnosis and with motivational interviewing, and our second guest will be Jerry Dorsman, who wrote the book, How to Quit Drinking Without AA. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little plug for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are the Hams Harm Reduction Network. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for anyone who wants to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest is Kathleen Siaka, who has uh, worked uh, many years in dual diagnosis, who's uh, worked with Motivational Interviewing. She's a member of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, MINT. Um, and she's developed dual diagnosis programs that have been models for other programs throughout the United States. Welcome, Kathleen. How are you doing tonight? Thank you very much. I'm doing fine, and I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about how you got, how you were involved with dual diagnosis and how this led you to motivational interviewing. Well, when, when I first of all I started my career, my second career, which was moving into wanting to become a therapist, and one of the first jobs that I had was in the addiction field, and I worked as a counselor uh, treating people who had um, heroin addiction in a methadone maintenance program. And in that program, we, the, the term dual diagnosis wasn't even used. This was in the 1970s and early 80s when the Vietnam War veteran was had PTSD and heroin addiction and certainly all kinds of other people had dual diagnosis. And they really had nowhere to go to get any help except this methadone maintenance clinic, which really didn't have skilled providers to help them or the right, you know, interventions. However, from there, I went to work for the New York State Office of Mental Health, and, and then I was assigned to work with people who had severe mental illness, and I discovered that the majority of those people had addictive disorders that had gone unaddressed their entire lives, practically. And uh, they were falling out of treatment and had a very high recidivism and active symptoms, and it was perfectly acceptable for them to be thrown out of treatment. Uh, because they drank or used drugs, and many of them, till now, have uh, reside among the homeless, have been incarcerated, have been disconnected from any form of treatment, and have never really found their way back. And I really don't want to take credit for the beginning of the dual diagnosis. I designed the model, but it, I happened to have a supervisor who really uh, was very empathic and cared about all of the clients in the program that he ran. And he, because I had the addiction background, he wanted me to design something for these clients that had uh, substance disorders and mental illness. And he really nudged me and pushed me into it. Uh, and to make a long story short, I somewhat didn't really know what to do, but then I realized that there was nowhere else to send these clients. They did not have the readiness or the uh, wherewithal to go into a substance abuse program and say, please help me, I want to change, which was the standard then, because mm -hmm. you had to be wanting to change to get treatment, otherwise you couldn't be treated. That was the held belief. Mm -hmm. uh, so in any case, uh, I agreed to do that, and I really matched up an intervention that that met the needs of these clients that would keep them engaged and talking and and through failure and, and success, I kept what worked and I threw out what didn't work. And I came upon a non-confrontational model that addressed readiness. I even had my own readiness scales to measure readiness of people to embark upon in, in treatment or change processes. And it became a psychoeducational model and people were allowed to not to even talk about themselves at all and just talk about topics or, you know, whatever felt right for them. And this became more and more sophisticated as we moved along and uh, as the state was scathed about their terrible treatment of the duly diagnosed, not that they were the only state, no one in the country was doing anything, mm -hmm. they decided to address this. There was a report by the Commission of Quality of Care that was very damaging for the state. 
And I had already had these programs rolling for a couple of years, and nobody really cared about it except the Commission on Quality of Care who visited them and thought they were wonderful. I had already began to expand beyond the program I was in into other programs within that state system. And to make a long story short, we began became a, a statewide training site to develop programs all over the state, and we began to cross systems now. I was training mental health providers and substance abuse providers, homeless providers, criminal justice providers, uh, and we began to cross the systems. And as I crossed the systems, one of the problems that I faced was that I had evolved the dual diagnosis model in a mental health setting so that the addictions people who were still heavily into confrontation really felt this was like a, some kind of mental health model and they you know, didn't need to give it so much credence. So it was very difficult to do the training. Yeah. But I continued to do it, and we did have people turning around, and it was very rough work. Uh, the mental health providers did not want to treat addiction. The addiction providers did not want to treat mental illness, even though they were all doing it anyway without acknowledging it. Uh, but in any case, I learned about motivational interviewing in about 1992, 91, 92, when the first book came out. And uh, one of my students, actually, in a, one of the program development classes, saw the similarities between their model and what we were doing with dual diagnosis. And so did I. And it became such a happy event for me because motivational interviewing grew out of the addiction field. So now I had an addiction model that was non-confrontational, non-judgmental, uh, you know, that was um, didn't treat relapse as treatment failure, uh, that was, uh, you know, empathic. Uh, that dealt with people at their level of readiness to change. All of these underlying elements, they actually wrote an article about it called Removing Barriers, which contrasted the two models. And that was very, very uh, important to me. It was a revelation, and I became very involved in learning motivational interviewing. And in 1995, I became a trainer. So now I had the two models, and also at that time, motivational interviewing was very comfortable integrating the stages of change. And I had done my own scales, but the stages had already had research involved, and uh, it was another model of measurement and showing outcome, and that change was incremental. That was another aspect of the two models that people, we started where people were at, and that change was looked upon as incremental. Uh, and that's how I got involved with motivational interviewing. And at that time, it was pretty much embedded in addictions, but now it's moved on to all kinds of behavior change, anywhere from primary health care to education. And, you know, uh, there, there are just so many, so many to even name uh, that motivational interviewing addresses. I mean, if, if behavior change is an issue, motivational interviewing can definitely be uh, an advantageous model to use. So from that, I began to teach motivational interviewing together and separately from the dual diagnosis model. And now I, I do seminars where I have multidiscipline groups from all kinds of backgrounds coming in to train together. And I also train people from all different uh, disciplines uh, as, and homogeneous groups that invite me to train them. And, uh, and I see it in and of itself. It's a, it's a very useful a respectful model, uh, and it uh, shows results. And it's certainly more advantageous to what is, even without the confrontational model, uh, the traditional models essentially come from the premise of asking closed questions, asking questions, uh, formulating what the people's issues are, and then giving advice, et cetera. And, uh, and it really shapes out the individual's participation in, uh, in the process itself. So uh, if I might just go say what motivational interviewing is, essentially it's a non-authoritarian, non-judgmental, non-confrontational model. Uh, collaboration is a central communication style, and that's born out of uh, Rogers' client-centered uh, it refers uh, to the client's uh, positions, thoughts, ideas, feelings being ultimately important. The client is the person who has to decide to change or not to change, and 
you know, whether this is something they uh, care to do, how they would like to do it, to what degree they would like to do it. Uh, and so it's a listening versus telling kind of model uh, that is very respectful, but also one that conveys the knowledge and the expertise of the provider, and that gets done in a collaborative way. Uh, and and that's done throughout. Every element of the process uh, is collaborative. Okay, I've got a couple elements here. I've got a little list in front of me here. I'm going to ask you to talk about each of these in a little more detail. Uh, okay. What I have here is express empathy. Okay, expressing empathy is another area that comes out of Carl Rogers' um, re reflective listening. Reflective listening is inherently empathic. And uh, what it means is that one, the listener, who is the provider, listens very closely to what the client is saying, and the main goal of their response is to convey to the individual that they understand what they are saying, feeling, thinking, experiencing. Not that they agree with it, you know, but that they understand it, even if they've never had the, the experience themselves in their life. The, the, it seems to be a myth that, that the people that have had experiences the same as the client are better counselors. That that's really has no basis in, in the literature mm -hmm. or anywhere else. But one can listen and understand, and and that is being empathic. That uh, accomplishes so many things uh, in the uh, process of relationship building. Uh, so one of the strategies that in motivational interviewing is open questions versus closed questions. So that if a person starts out with an open question, such as, you know, what would you like to talk about today versus, uh, you know, did you go to your therapy group last week, which is a closed question. I could say yes or no. What I'd like to talk about requires something more, you know, from the, as a response. And that response mm -hmm. would then be reflected back by the uh, individual, by the listener. Mm -hmm. Reflections are always done in the form of a statement, and they come in different qualities and forms. One could uh, have what's called a simple reflection where they might actually repeat what the person said. Uh, say the client says, I don't know what I'm doing here, I don't have any problem. And the provider would say, so you don't know what you're doing here, you don't have any problem. That would be a simple repeating reflection. Whereas a complex reflection might be, well, you know, it seems that someone else thinks you need to be here and that's what brought you to see me, but you're not agreeing, which would be adding more meaning to what the person offered, but still staying within the realm of what the person offered you to be understood. Uh, to me, I believe that, first of all, the first contact with any kind of an agency, one would want to engage the person through open questions and reflective listening and following. Reflective listening is following, where questions are leading. If I, if I open up an area for you to talk to me about and I continually reflect, I keep following you. Once I start asking questions, well, why didn't you do this instead of that? Or, you know, what did you do when they said this to you? Now I'm beginning to lead you. I'm going where I want to go. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I think primarily our ways of interventions are leading. Mostly the provider leads. The provider leads with the question, things they want to know that are going to help them to help the person, and then they give their uh, form of expertise, which actually shapes the person out of the discussion is not empathic whatsoever, is road-blocking in a way because the person is not feeling heard, they're not participating, and it help, doesn't help them to explore anything except mm -hmm. what, the, what the provider thinks is important to know. Right, so, empathic, so empathy is really an acceptance, acceptance of where a person is, of how they're thinking, feeling, uh, understanding things, uh, rather than uh, an opposition where, you know, well, you have to come here whether you think you belong here or not. 
you know, which is a an oppositional kind of answer rather than say, one could actually do another strategy, which is affirming to a person and say something in a reflection like, you know, well, you know, I really want to commend you for coming here. I mean, it must have been hard for you to do that since you don't think you have a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, a very different kind of response than, you know, well, you're going to come here whether you like it or not. The court sent you, or you know, whatever we have to hang over people's heads. So, so empathy is actually an inherent element of reflective listening. And I hope I don't know how much I could go into reflective listening, but before I, we're going to touch upon it again in the strategies. But I, in my experience, it is one of the most potent elements of motivational interviewing. It stays with the person. You, you're thinking, you'd rather, you know, now you can see that it's, you know, your fear of abandonment rather than whether or not you have the cigarette or, you know, all of this that goes, brings the person further and deeper into an exploration of what this is all about for them uh, allows them to explore something in a thorough way which enables them to come to an intrinsic decision about what they want to do about it. And that would be in contrast to an externally pressured or an externally motivated, we'll take your children away if you don't stop that or, you know, or whatever other kinds of external pressures there may be. It's very, very powerful, and it's very, very empowering for people. But I would say out of all of the skills in motivational interviewing, it's one of the more difficult ones to learn. And that's because our traditional work is really embedded in the question, answer, formulate the problem, give advice model, so that as people are talking to us, and and this happens all the time and in the training uh, setting and where people are beginning to learn how to practice, while someone's talking to you, you automatically begin to formulate your question. So if you want to learn how to do reflective listening, you have to put that question aside or reformulate it into a reflection. In order to learn that, you must be determined, focused, directive, and really wanting to do it. It's like changing any other kind of behavior. The the uh, traditional kind of practice is a very habitual kind of behavior, and it takes a determination to change that, just like clients have to be determined to change things in their lives. Well, I know the traditional approach, since I've experienced it, it's not empathetic at all. It's very invalidating. It would say things like, well, your best thinking got you here, and take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. Right. Demeaning. Demeaning and any strength that you had was uh, diminished. You know, you were told, you have no strength. You cannot change. You must rely on something outside of yourself. Right. And see, that's absolutely the opposite of motivational interviewing. And one of the things that I really want to credit with them is that if you look at the five strategies, affirming is a strategy. It's one of the five main interventions that a provider must learn how to do. The last thing I'm going to say to you is a non-affirming or, or negatively judgmental reply uh, in motivational interviewing. I, I am definitely not practicing motivational interviewing if I do that. Uh, so that instead, it's my uh, focus as a provider to listen for strengths to affirm about you. So rather than saying your best thinking got you here, you know, one might say, uh, you know, from all you've been through, you know, now you've actually come here to talk to somebody about it. It's led you you know, to to begin an exploration about this. Wouldn't that be a different way to look at that? Absolutely. And it would be an affirming way. You're doing it. You're empowered. And one of the another distinction in motivational interviewing is that it's the client's responsibility to make changes or not, to decide what they want to do, how they want to do it, if they want to do it. And that changes the role of the provider. And Judging from as many years as I've been doing this work, which is about 35, and I had another career before this, 
you know, I guess whoever's out there listening could imagine how that I'm not a, a very young person. I'm not extremely old. I have all my faculties about me. But I've seen over and over the years that people uh, intervene in a way that uh, really is not, you know, looking at, at, at the positive end and is not really, um, you know, wanting to uh, help the person to move in the way that they want to go. And and not only that, our traditional systems and services teach providers that they are responsible for making people change. Mm-hmm. So if I don't yell at you and curse at you or coerce you somehow to do this and you don't do anything, I look bad. Mm-hmm. It's reflecting now on my skill set, on my abilities, which is the furthest thing from reality. The reality is that it's your responsibility to make that change. And if you decide not to do it in motivational interviewing, one could look at every element of what goes into the possibility of deciding to make a change, and the client looks at all of it and says, I'd rather die at 40 than not drink anymore. Mm-hmm. That's their decision. Mm-hmm. And the and the provider would accept that. Mm-hmm. So that when you look in turn at the client being the person responsible for deciding to make a change, for what kind of change they want to make or don't want to make, etc., then that gives the role of the provider a different role. And I see the role as a provider in motivational interviewing and in other models as facilitating a thorough exploration of all the positive and negative underlying issues, cognitive issues that go into the client's understanding of what this is all about for them so they can make an intrinsic decision as to whether or not they want to do something about it. Now, that changes my role. And when I've done that, my job is done. I th- but the issue is that many providers don't do that because if the client's not moving along, they give up on them, they're not doing what they think they should be doing, they're just taking up our time, they don't really want to change, and on and on and on, and people never really give the person the benefit of that exploration. And I just want to say one other thing in that vein before we go away, from, because I think it's very important. I think that a lot of providers, I've been doing these tapes for psychiatrists and ment- and uh, physicians, et cetera, who have a lot of information, and we all have information to impart. And I think that there's a very clear distinction between the client's responsibility to make a change, the client exploring and, and the provider assisting them to explore. All of, and motivational living has many strategies that help with that, like one that you pointed out was the you know, the uh, decision balance and, you know, the uh, developing dysreferency, resolving ambivalence. These are, you know, different ways in which the motivational interviewing provider works to help the person to reach a decision and to look at all of the different sides of things. Uh, But I think that uh, it's important that, as I said earlier, that once that this is done, that it becomes the client's decision as to whether or not they're going to to move in any direction and, and make that change. And one of my thoughts just escaped me, but well, it'll come back to me. Well, I was just but, thinking when you, when you were saying this, you know, oftentimes, you know, when a client would come in, you know, looking for help in a more traditional uh, type of setting, and they might have a goal, let's say, well, I don't want to drink and drive anymore, but maybe they don't want to drink less. But they decided drinking and driving is bad, and they want to make that change. Right. And a traditional setting would say, no, you have to quit drinking, you have to go to AA, and you don't have any choices. You have to do what we say. Right. And I think that, you know, I I saw a documentary about this a number of years ago that was very, very interesting. And it was really comparing our country to England and Britain, you know, where, where they have... Uh, allow people to um, change in, in different ways where they may, you know, have controlled drinking. Like one woman used to get drunk every night, 
And then she decided she would only get drunk on Fridays, which is quite a, you know, quite a transition for her. Uh, but I think that what that program was pointing out is that if a person in our country does not want to go for abstinence, then they have no other option. So they don't do anything. Right? So that whereas I, it may be very responsible of me not to drink and drive. Mm-hmm. I might save lives and my children's lives and other people's lives and uh but because I'm not gonna do it all, I'm not acceptable into treatment. Or I'd have to lie. Mm-hmm. I'd have to lie and say, I wanna do it all and then when I get into the center I'm not doing it all and I begin to you know, uh fall down and if I'm in a court system somehow or everything starts falling in on me or people are throwing me out and I'm not doing it. Uh so one cannot come in honestly and and you know, say, This is what I want to change and let's start there. That's my starting point. You wanna help me or you know, uh and and then we can start from there. And if a person wants to go beyond that, that's fine. If they don't, uh however I think in motivational interviewing the provider would try to help the person look at other potential areas that may be of danger as well and you know, so that the person could make a more informed decision. And that's the thought that I lost before. The thought that I lost before was that even though it's the client's responsibility to decide whether a change, to change or not, that doesn't shape out the provider's expertise so that Providers do know a lot. They do know what might help the person. You know, they do know what might be, you know, available for them and how other people have done it. But that information needs also needs to be imparted in a collaborative way, not just told to the individual or pushed on the individual like you are describing. You must go to AA and you must uh, come to this program and do it this way or that's it. You can't come at all. That's what left the duly diagnosis people out in the cold. They were too mentally ill and they had too many other problems going on to make up that lie in a treatment center. (laughs) to get in, Mm -hmm. you know, and many of other people that want to get through court systems and things like that are savvy enough to go in and lie, but then they don't make the change because they have not intrinsically made the decision to make the change. And and that's the one way that we can get people to change when they haven't decided, and that would be to coerce them by scaring them or threatening them or bribe them, let them live in a nice house with everybody if they agree not to do certain things, and then they can't do them. We have to get rid of them. Uh, But even if they do them, if they do these uh, activities, go through a whole treatment program and their children were taken away and now they came back and the courts and all of the resources and money and involvement and a disruptions of children's lives, and after it's all said and done, the client goes back to using drugs again because they never decided it was a problem for them. Everybody mm-hmm. else decided it, but they didn't. So once the coercion, the threats are lifted, I'm right back to what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I can't see anything more wasteful than that. I mean, if, if that's not the argument, to go for intrinsic change uh, and and explorations and helping people to really come to their own decisions about what this really means for them and their lives and the lives of other people. Uh, I don't know what else could argue that more. I think we have a very, very wasteful system of care and a, a very, very wasteful criminal justice system where we're locking people up to cure drug addiction without any intervention, any way for the person to think any differently about it. And as soon as they walk out, they they walked in liking it, they walk out liking it, they haven't looked at it in any other way, and they're right back to where they started. Okay, we got about two minutes left on this segment. Tell me a little bit about uh, Rolling with Resistance, and we're going to close on that Okay. Uh, rolling with resistance, actually that term has now been changed to discord, discordance. It's looked as a, as a relational problem. Resistance is looked upon in motivational interviewing or discord 
as a sign that the relationship between the provider and the client is not going well. It takes two people for a relationship not to go well, which is one of the reasons they don't like the term resistance, because resistance implies that it's the client's behavior and that they're coming to us in this uh, attitude and, you know, and therefore we can't really do our work. Uh, but in discord, uh, what's happening is that the client and the provider have different agendas. Like the example you gave, the client wants to stop drinking and driving. The provider wants the client to stop drinking altogether, to go to AA, to come in this treatment program and stop now, which is has other problems that I, I you know, would like to mention at some point. Uh, so that we have two very different agendas here. How can we work together? You're not giving me what I want. I'm not doing what you want. So we are in disparate places. We have a discordant relationship. And the longer we remain that way, the more acting out behaviors might occur. The client might stop showing up or get nasty in the meeting. They begin to realize that you're not going to help me. You're not going to help me. And the provider is realizing you're not going to do what we want. They've never joined up together. There's been no engagement. There's been no basis of trust for the relationship. There's been no empathy, no understanding, no attempt to join together and move along for a while uh, to see where it leads us. Um, and it leads uh, a situation that is uh, is just not workable. And it could go on. Sometimes those relationships go on for ages in, in treatment settings. And people just never join up, and, and nothing ever really happens with that. So rolling with resistance, the term would once be, and it still does mean, that we would not push up against it. Another scenario of what might have been called resistance is where we reach a point, say, one of the things that reflective listening is so expedient about and amazing when you learn how to practice it is that you can go from a cognitive presentation of a problem uh, like I, you know, I want to stop drinking, you know, so that I uh, won't drive my car and endanger people. That's your presenting problem. But as we continue to reflect and look at it or whatever, you might have a deep concern about how you are raising your child you know, and uh, and the irresponsibility involved in that, and or how people may have treated you when you were, you know, in an irresponsible way as uh, your caretakers. It, it may go into a whole other place, and now the provider is going to reflect that. So it seems like you know, not only is it the safety factor and the driving, but you really, you know, care about how you. Uh, raise your child, and this is a value involved here, and, and how your child will grow up to believe that and learn that you really protected them and looked out for their well-being. And now, say the client says, yeah, but also I don't want to get in an accident or whatever. What happened here? What happened here is that the client acknowledged, yes, this deeper part, but I don't want to talk about that anymore. Okay. Now, at one point, one would say, well, we've, we've come up against resistance. The client is giving us a signal, we don't want to talk about this anymore because they went back to talking about having an accident and moved away from the underlying issues, which are how they were treated as a child and how they feel about treating their children. That would be rolling with resistance. What I would do now is I would rejoin back to the driving, getting in an accident problem. I would not keep pushing against well, let's look at this a little bit more. How did your family treat you? You know, how you know, are you following me? Yes. So yes, that would be pushing up against the resistant area versus moving away from it. Getting the signal that the client does not want to go any further over here and either moving on to, well, what else is there about this you'd like to talk about? Moving away from it or moving along with the client back to the cognitive issue of, you know, getting in a car accident or whatever that presenting problem was. So that would be another form of rolling with resistance. Thank you. We're going to have to wind up this segment now. Uh, the next guest is here. Thank you so much 
for coming here to tell us about motivational interviewing. I think there's. Are we much- done? Uh, yeah, we finished the first half hour. We're on this the next. Segment. Oh my uh, goodness! Okay. I uh, know there's enough left that you could come back and do a whole other half hour. I think we'll have. You back I would love sometime. to. Yeah, I would love to. Actually, I have a couple of videotapes coming out, and I'm going to post them up on my website. So it probably won't be for about another month, but they're a little bit more thorough and they're more, you know, organized and and going over all the different intervention strategies and. Uh, I did them for someone for their website. Now they've been gracious enough to give them to me to put on my website. Well, I really uh, appreciate the opportunity, and I hope that people have some uh, better insight, those that didn't know about motivational interviewing, into what some of the elements are. Thank you so much. I want to bring Thank Jerry. You. I want to bring Jerry on now. Are you coming in? Hello, Jerry. Are you there? Oh, I'm here. Yes. How are you doing, Ken? I'm doing fine. Uh, this is Jerry Dorsman. He is the author of How to Quit Drinking Without AA. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Thank you very much. Good to be on. Um, I've got your book. I was looking through your book this week, and I saw you had a lot of worksheets in here. Um, I'm going to start. Just tell me a little bit about some of the worksheets that you have in your book. Well, um, my book... Uh, starts with um, worksheets to help people evaluate how serious their problem is with alcohol um, and then goes on to help them develop a plan to quit. Well, I guess, first of all, to build their determination to quit, and then once they're determined to quit, once they know they need to, then um, to develop a plan that will work for them. And then I have quite a few worksheets that help them build upon that plan um, there are so many different aspects that they could choose from um, that we know help in recovery um, so they can make evaluations along the way of what might help and what they can pick up and use in their own recovery. Okay. I was I saw a chapter here, uh, How to Break a Habit, and you had five things here. The first was to know that you can change you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, um, it's interesting. Some people get so locked up in their habits, uh, it's like second nature. It's like they don't even think that they can change. Um, So in order to break any habit, and and I mean any habit, even uh, the way in which you brush your teeth or something like that, uh, which you would do the same way over and over and over, um, but in order to break any habit, you have to um, know that you can change it. Uh, and to so sometimes you just have to take a look at it. What is what is this habit all about? What are, what am I doing over and over? What am I repeating in a way over and over? And, um, and then you, once you know you once you take a look at it, you can say, hmm, I could do that in a different way. I I know I can change it. So that's one of the key things to breaking any habit, no matter how simple or how complex the habit. Um, of course, substance use is a, can become a really serious habit with lots of other um, uh, assets or, you know, a facet to it. And uh, so um, you need to look at a lot of different issues uh, with that one. And so, of course, I go on and do that as well. Okay. You hit a... Yeah. But I put this in uh, just because it is good to analyze habits themselves, what they're all about, what it's like to live with habits, and then what kind of things we can do to go ahead and break any habit in our life, um, including then some of these more complex habits, some of these addictions that we have um, to alcohol or drugs. I think it's a very important thing for people to realize that they do have the power within themselves to make the change, and there's uh, some studies, some statistics by the NIAAA that have been published recently. Uh, It's in the NIAAA spectrum in 2009. There's an article called Alcoholism Isn't What It Used to Be. Everybody out there can Google this, and it says that 55% of people with alcohol dependence will resolve this on their own. They will recover on their own, and only 20% go to AA or use some kind of specialized treatments. So the normal outcome is actually for people to overcome addictions on their own. It can take a long time and a lot of work. So any 
resources that people can find along the way, such as good books to give you good ideas to help you change your behaviors, are an excellent aid to speed things up. I mean, the NIAAA study went over a period of 20 years. It said it can take up to 20 years to change. So speeding that up is a good thing. But, you know, it is, it is the norm for people to overcome bad habits. And we've kind of been given a message from the treatment industry and all their advertising. You have to come to us for help. But it's not really true. That's right. It's not really true. And, uh, yeah, the evidence um, increasingly points to um, the numbers of people, the vast numbers and the, and the uh, majority of people uh, will break addictions on their own without ever going to treatment professionals, uh, treatment uh, settings, uh, institutions, and so forth. Um, and they only can find that out by doing these broad-based studies of the American public. Uh, in which they ask, you know, did you did do you or did you have a serious uh, drinking or drug habit? And um, then they also then will ask, uh, have you been able to break that? And they, so they can get this kind of data. And yeah, they show that uh, more than fifty uh, percent of the people will get into recovery do it on their own. Okay. So that's a have, real interesting statistic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have another uh, statement in this chapter here about unlearning learned behaviors? Do you want to expand on how people can unlearn a learned behavior? Well, so much of what we, uh, you know, the way we live our lives are learned behaviors, um, including even uh, how we enter into addictions. A lot of the, a lot of addictive behavior is learned. We learn how to um, we learn how to drink in a way. We learn how to do drugs. Um, we um, and and there's so much learning that's involved. Uh, you know you can do so much, and then if you do more than that, there's going to be issues. Um, it's not always the case that you could manage it and you can stay within those parameters. But you do learn how the parameters, and you do learn how to live with that. Um, there's a lot of learning. Um, for instance, there's just learning that it solves certain problems for us. Um, and so once you're using substances to solve other problems, like reducing stress, reducing depression, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with um, issues in the family, stuff you just want to forget about, uh, issues in the past that you want to forget about, different kinds of, even if you uh, lived a life where you had different kinds of uh Abuse issues in your past, you may have PTSD or something like that. Um, those kinds of be- those kinds of behaviors are all learned, and um, learning that the substance helps solve some issues, you can unlearn that. So here's now I'm going to get to the other part. You can begin to unlearn those behaviors, meaning you can find other ways to solve the same kinds of problems you were using alcohol or drugs to solve. You can start unlearning that behavior, and then you can drop the behavior. At some point, there's a point at which when you get into recovery, you drop that behavior and you replace it with something different, something new. So that's when you have unlearned it completely. You have, like, moved all, all the way to a, to something else, and uh, that's when you're starting to be successful. That's when uh, those of us who've gotten into recovery that's when we start to be become successful because we unlearn this behavior. It's finally complete. We're finally able to take new steps in a new direction and um, and find a new life. Basically, that's basically the start of a new life for us. It is indeed. Um, the next one you had on your list here was to make a decision to change. And tell me about making the decision to change. Well, of course, this is uh, key to any uh, to any uh, changes we're going to make. We need to. It starts with a decision. We have to get to the place where we're actually saying, "I'm I'm going to change. I need to make the I need to make a change." Lots of times, uh, we put there's some rational thought into our decision process. We know we have uh, if whatever we're doing, it's causing lots of problems. It's starting to cost us money. We're spending money on lawyers because we've gotten in trouble with the law. Um, we're spending money on doctors because it's tearing up our insides, because it's causing lots of biological issues. 
the addictions um, don't come free of charge. They they damage us in lots of ways. So part of uh, making this decision to change is taking a look at um, these kinds of issues and saying, my gosh, I'm, this is it. I need to make a change. I can't keep living like this. Uh, my life's got too much out of control. Um, so... Of course, that's where, so that's that's kind of a, the turning point right there, making that decision to change and then turning around on that and then beginning the new life, you know, making the, making the decision then leads to the change. Then we can do it. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Um, so it fits in well with the stages of change theory that we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago with Carlo Di Clemente. Um, when we're oh, talking yeah. About Pre-contemplation and contemplation, and then you make the decision. You go into preparation right. and action. Right. Uh-huh. And yeah, there's a, there's a ton of research that went into those uh, stages of that stages of change model uh, that Dick Clementi and his uh, associates worked on, and um, that's a that's a beautiful model. That that and you see right in the middle there is that uh, decision to change. That's the the third step right in the middle of five steps. Okay. You talk about coping with cravings or compulsions. How can people cope with cravings and compulsions? Well, uh, first of all, you need to take a look at um, how long a craving lasts. Um, And typically they don't last more than five minutes. They can become really intense. They can drive us to want to go back and use. Um, but when you analyze it, they're really intense for like five minutes. So the first way to just cope with cravings is to compartmentalize it, to realize that, uh, hey, this is a chunk of time. I just need to get through this chunk, and then it's going to be get easier in a few minutes. Um, now, that said, that that's still difficult uh, for a lot of people. So probably the next best way is, is distraction, is to um, find something interesting to do to distract yourself. Um, and so this can be a long list of things um, of um, from art, you know, like art therapy or something like that, mm-hmm. um, to um, listening to some kind of soothing music, um, to uh, going out and taking a walk, getting some exercise in, starting to clean house, doing something that's different, doing something that um, will take your mind off of the craving itself. Uh, So putting together a whole number of techniques, any one of which you can choose at any time you're having a craving, um, is important. And uh, and then knowing you have, um, have lots of different methods can be really helpful, and you can pick and choose. You can use different ones with each craving that comes up. And so, of course, the, uh, you know, the earlier we are in recovery, as soon as we quit, those cravings are frequent and they're intense, you know. Um, but over time, of course, they they become less frequent and less intense, which is really the coolest thing. Um, but early in recovery, that first month, the first couple of months can be can be really tough. And that's why that the uh, the relapse potential in those first month or two um, of recovery is so high. It's because the, the intensity of those cravings is so great, and all people can think of the only way they can think to solve it is to just go go out and use, you know, go out and mm-hmm. whatever it is that they're doing, the alcohol or the drugs. Yeah. Well, I know when I was quitting cigarettes for the first uh, couple months. I had cinnamon sticks with me all the time, and I would put a cinnamon stick in my mouth and chew on that instead of smoking a cigarette. And I'd be chewing on those all day long. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, a number of people do that. Um, the um, and licorice sticks. Have you, <laughs> have you heard of people mm-hmm. using that for quitting smoking? Yeah, I heard licorice uh, root was uh, something. Licorice root, used. yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I quit smoking too. And, uh, boy, that was a tough addiction to break. <laughs> that was very tough. Yeah, you know, the cinnamon kind of dries your mouth out like a cigarette. Kind of tastes nasty like a cigarette, so it's kind of good. 
<laughs> right. Oh, boy. <laughs> now, another one on this list is find something to replace the habit. So what are some things people can find to replace the habit? Well, uh, some of the... Um, uh, some of the best things to do to replace the habit are going to actually help reduce stress um, and reduce um, negative emotions like depression and things like that. So I have a number of uh, chapters in my book on um, uh, ways to do that. So I have a lot of stress reduction techniques, talk about exercise, various forms of exercise to help um, reduce stress, um, even diet can help reduce stress, um, stress on the body and stress on the mind. Um, and so I've gone through all of those types of techniques. Uh, these are these are going to be some of the key things to learn to try and put together a life in recovery, or um, how to start feeling better without using without having to return to the drug or alcohol to um, to deal with those issues. We want to find real ways to do that. I also discuss things like uh, therapy um, or making sure you have at least one um, one good friend you can uh, relate to and talk talk the deepest issues to and things like that. Um, some people find they quit their drugs or alcohol and don't have any friends because all of them were using and, and they look back and they think, they weren't even my friends. So then I recommend you need to go get a therapist or somebody that uh, can hear your deepest uh, innermost thoughts, you know? Now, that's an interesting one that you just mentioned. Um, I remember when I was in Japan, I, de- I decided I was going to quit drinking for nine months. And the person that was the most supportive was actually my best drinking friend. But, so you know... Oh, yeah. He totally respected my decision and was completely supportive of it and, you know, said... Yeah, this is good. And, you know, so uh, we hung out together a lot. And, you know, uh, he wasn't drinking when I wasn't drinking. You know, he had his drinking times apart from me. So he's totally respectful and could be very supportive. So I guess, you know, some of your old friends you can still keep. Some of them maybe are not a good influence and you need to cut the ties. That's an interesting point. And it's a rare situation where people find that, where their friend is such a good friend, um, and who probably, it sounds like he was a social drinker, probably doesn't have a serious addiction issue himself. Um, otherwise, they do try and pull you back in, I think, to join them in their in the addiction. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, that, that happened to me, too. When I quit, I one of my best friends, he was a social drinker, and uh, I hung out with him, and... Uh, I know my friend was a pretty heavy boozer. Um, he was. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, you know, when he was like in his 30s, he would drink a fifth of whiskey every night. But then he was in his 40s now, and he didn't do that anymore. He would, you know, drink a couple nights a week, and then the other nights would just not touch it anymore because he said, you know, he's getting too old for that. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. But I, I've noticed a lot of people that really they cut back a lot from being very heavy drinkers and they still, you know, even though they drink quite a bit a night a week or two nights a week, they don't, you know, do the same. They don't pound it down every night like they used to anymore. People do actually moderate and, and, uh, are able to do that successfully. Uh, others really, about the only route for them, uh, is, is abstinence, you know? That's very true. I mean, lots of people find quitting completely, is the easiest to maintain. It works best for them in many ways. Um, sometimes with their social interactions too, you know, their family doesn't want them to drink anymore. And lots of people find quitting completely is the best and even the easiest in many ways. Right, yeah. Yeah, reduces uh, all temptation, you know. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not like you, you're still keeping uh, any uh, vestige of that addiction alive when you when you leave it completely. Um, but there is some evidence that a number of people do are, are able to moderate their drinking and actually uh, return from um, heavy uh, addictive-type behavior to um, 
to something more moderate, something ma- more manageable later in life. Yeah, we I find think, it uh, goes the other way sometimes too. You know, can sometimes uh, mm-hmm. people have been social drinkers for a long period in their life, and then all of a sudden it starts going the other way. They start getting out of control with it. Uh, yes. Sometimes yes. this happens. You'll hear it happen uh, late in life after people uh, retire. So among uh, among the older uh, generations, sometimes uh, you'll hear after they retire, they start drinking, start boozing up to uh, pretty heavy. Um, and so there's a whole addiction treatment um, uh, arm that's starting to look at the, at the uh, older folks, at the senior citizens, let's say, whatever, uh, and uh, finding ways to help them specifically because there are some issues that are a little different with the older generation. Um, well, and, not all yeah. of them are going to jump right into AA either. Yeah, particularly when you retire and suddenly there's all this free time in your life that you didn't have before. What are you going to do with it? And people aren't prepared for that. It's very easy to drink to fill that up. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I think that's what happens, right? Well, you talk quite a bit about diet and foods in your book. So tell us a little bit about, um, I don't know if everybody can change their diet when they stop drinking, but maybe some people will find this helpful. So what do you recommend people do to change their diet when they stop drinking alcohol? Well, I'll tell you, I put a, I put a pretty strict diet in my books. Um, I, um, I decided to um, go ahead and give what I thought was the best <laughs> um, diet for making uh, changes in the body, for actually healing uh, any damage that may have been caused from the alcohol. Uh, And uh, also then, there's a lot of evidence about how diet affects our mood. And also I wanted to make sure to include a diet that helps us uh, feel um, calm. Um, And so I I included that. I did a lot of research on diet before writing that chapter, and I think it might be the longest chapter in my book, actually, just because there are a lot of details to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I just figured I'd put the strictest, what I thought was the best diet in there, and I figured the closer people can approximate it, you know, the better. Um, frankly, I, I've worked, I've worked for, in the addiction treatment field for about 20 five years now and helping other people and this is not one of the key things that people want to do. So even though I think it's key and I know mm-hmm. some people some people do. They they get into recovery and they say and they really get into this. They really want to change diet and really improve a lot of their health issues and so forth. And so that's cool. They'll they're they're into that. But um I'd say probably um the majority of people don't don't want to change their diet. Um I really think it can make a big difference, uh, but it's not necessary. Like, you know, there there are just so many techniques that can help, and people need to pick and choose the list of techniques that is going to work for them. Um, kind of strain a little bit, but I, I'm going to get back to this. See, the diet you have a diet in a sense with a lot of alcohol in it. And if all you do is take the alcohol out, what people tend to do is replace it by eating a lot of sweets, mm-hmm. which is really really just doing a number on your body. And in some ways, it's, it's well, it's a little better than the alcohol, but in some ways it's still harming you pretty deeply if you, if you do that. It is the tendency. The body craves sweets because well, here's the thing. With alcohol, um, the body converts the alcohol to sugar. So the body gets lots and lots of sugar. If you're if you're a heavy alcoholic, you're getting you're putting a lot of sugar into your body because um, as uh, the body detoxes from alcohol, you know we wind up with uh, a few uh, um, chemicals. We wind up with carbon dioxide and such, but we also wind up with sugar in the bloodstream, lots of it. And we tend to most of the alcoholics. Um, they uh, tend to be hypoglycemic also because they've had so much sugar in their systems for so many years. So the diet I recommend also helps um, maintain or reduce, or actually, in fact, eliminate hypoglycemia over a period of time. It will help eliminate it. Um, I, well, I had severe hypoglycemia myself, and the, 
the diet I worked with and finally settled on uh, helped get rid of that in pretty quick, pretty short order, less than a year or so. It helped take care of that issue. Uh, so it's kind of a roundabout statement, but I think diet's really important. On the other hand, I think people can get away with not doing that as long as they do a number of other good things for themselves. Um, but I uh, I did spend some time, lots of re- time researching diet, and, uh, you know, hopefully uh, people can change it a little bit, maybe uh, to do to, to some of their health benefit, you know. Okay. Well, our time is up for tonight. So thank you very much for okay. being our guest tonight, Jerry Dorsman. That book is How to Quit Drinking Without AA, and it's available from Amazon. And next week, our guests will be Megan Ralston from the Drug Policy Alliance and David Burns, who is the author of Feeling Good. Thank you, everyone, for coming, and good night. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much.